0: Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host, Anna Rascuad-Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, Kenneth Waltz, Senior Research Scholar at the Arnold A. Saltzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, talks about his life and career with James Fearon, professor of political science at Stanford University and editorial committee member of the Annual Review of Political Science. Dr. Wolfs discusses his childhood in Ann Arbor, Michigan, his service in the military, which took him to Japan during World War II and then Korea, and how he developed his ideas on American foreign policy, nuclear weapons policy, and polarity.
1: Uh, Ken, thank you very very much for uh, for talking with me uh, and, and thank you on behalf of the uh, annual review of political science um, uh, the edit- editorial board really appreciates it and I, and I know our uh, our readers will as well um, so uh, I wanted to talk to you about your uh, your career and uh, uh, your career in political science and in the field of IR in particular let's let 's start with just some some basic information I, I gather you were Born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan? Yes, I was. And uh, you went to high school there. Uh, but uh, um, I also gather that you weren't particularly interested in international relations in high school? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, what were what were the things you liked at that time or were, were interested in, in in high school?
2: Well, I always uh, enjoyed mathematics, and ultimately, when I went to college, I majored in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I liked... I liked various subjects. Mm-hmm. I liked history. I liked English literature. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I liked French. You know, I, I enjoyed. I, I really can't think of anything that I studied in high school that I did not like.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, uh, so you went to Oberlin.
2: I went to Oberlin College quite by fortunate
1: accident. Oh, how was it an accident or? Well,
2: most people, especially people from lower middle-class families, uh, took as a matter of course that if they were going to go to college, they would go to the University of Michigan, uh-huh. and I made that assumption as well. And then, luckily, two of my friends were sons and daughters of the um, dean of the University of Michigan, dean of arts and sciences, and he encourages kids to consider other colleges, namely Oberlin. So. I went with them. They they drove uh, from Ann Arbor to Oberlin about 115 miles, and we took um, examinations for scholarships. And I took the examination in mathematics and due course. I got a message from Oberlin saying that they had uh, decided to offer me a one-semester tuition scholarship. And almost the same day, I... Got a letter from the University of Michigan where I had checked a box on the admissions form saying, yes, I would like to have a scholarship. And uh, the offer from Michigan was a four-year tuition mm. scholarship. So I immediately wrote to Oberlin saying, much though I would like to come to Oberlin, under the circumstances, I obviously cannot. Promptly, I received a letter from Oberlin saying, just by chance. When we received your letter, we were considering you for a <laughs> four-year uh-huh. full tuition scholarship, which I then, of course, accepted.
1: Uh, that's nice to know this kind of negotiation occurred even back then. I didn't even uh, know I was back... negotiating. Yeah, right. <laughs> so that's the best way to do it. Right. right. Um, so, and your time at Oberlin was interrupted by service in, in, in the Army in World War II? The
2: first thing is that after three semesters in a row, uh, and suffering could, could deal with sinus headaches, It's a bad climate. It's very damp. And Oberlin, I I decided to go to the University of Texas for a semester, which I did, which turned out to be extremely good because I, I took classes for which I had no prerequisites. And in fact, the transcript is almost all not good for credit at the University of Texas, but I cleared it with Oberlin, and they were delighted that I was taking courses I had no preparation for. And so it worked out very well. And at the, uh, shortly after the uh, end of that semester,
1: I was drafted. And, and uh, you, were, you were sent to the Pacific?
2: Uh, in due course, I was uh, sent to the Pacific, right? Mm-hmm. Having, having concentrated on German and French oh. because I thought the war would, in Europe would last longer than it did, uh, I was to the Pacific. Spent a year in in Japan. Year in the, Japan, the occupation. Right,
1: mm-hmm. and then and then uh, this was this was your first service, and you went back in for the Korean War. I stayed
2: in the inactive reserve, and uh, I was called back as a. For, I guess I was a first lieutenant. I was called back and uh, spent nine months in Korea.
1: Mm-hmm. Did the did these army experiences? Um, uh, influence your subsequent thinking, or you know about the u s army u s defense policy or international relations more generally generally but
2: not any at
1: any specific mm-hmm. way Could you say how
2: uh, well uh, it's very difficult to say how and it 's a very general sense of and I mean, I was not interested in studying international politics mm-hmm. uh, at that time. And in fact, I wasn't even interested in studying international politics subsequently when I was a graduate student. Mm-hmm. Uh, just that one had to have a major and a minor. And since I had done work in international economics, I thought a uh, minor in international relations would be probably the easiest minor I could have and would interfere to the least possible extent with what I was really interested in, which was political philosophy, so that's how I happened to do international relations at all.
1: So this is back at uh, at Columbia. Um, yes. Before you went to Korea, or maybe after you after you got back, you're taking exams. And uh, I, I
2: took the uh, comprehensive exam, which then consisted of and only of a two-hour oral exam. Mm-hmm. I took that before I went back into the army.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but, but you know I've heard uh, or, 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 or uh, heard you say or remember that um, it was the, the, the idea for your first uh, book, or you did, your dissertation, which became your first book, Man, State, and War, really actually started with the, 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 this minor exam. In, it, it did.
2: Uh, it was customary for people who were studying with a professor named Peffer, Nathaniel Peffer, to make arrangements. If you were a minor in the field, cover certain things and not other things. For example, he was was, his principal course was imperialism, so I was going to cover imperialism, European diplomatic history, and leave aside law and organization and all such matters. And uh, he got sick, so it turned out that uh, William T. R. Fox was the principal man on the minor field when I explained this arrangement to him, he said he had never heard of any such arrangement. Mm-hmm. If I was going to do international relations, I would do international relations, period. So i that's what I did. So we had three weeks, which I was going to spend on my major, uh, and my wife and I scurried around the library getting a lot of books on international relations, and I couldn't make head or tail of them. And that's when I realized that the problem with this, embryonic literature there was not any there was no big literature to the way there is now in that field luckily for me uh, but but they were talking in cross purposes and that's what i figured out that some of them were beginning with man and what human nature's like and all that and some were concentrating on the state good states make peace and bad states Point well, with that simplistic formula and some were looking at international politics as a whole and that's what led to man-of-state war. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh, and and so, so you kind of gravitated into the IR side of things. Was it, was it Fox? Well, I didn't
2: intend to. I thought yeah. I was doing theory. Because, you know, man-of-state war is a lot of theory. And, uh, but it turned out, of course, that when you were on the job market, the, the jobs, if there were any at all, were in international relations, mm-hmm. not in political theory.
1: So, so did Fox end up being your advisor, or was it something for the else, dissertation? The dissertation? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, now, once you started working on, on well, I guess you, you, you thought of it as a as a political philosophy or political theory dissertation. But did you, you know, Fox had quite, a, as I recall, a, a circle of of uh, kind of people studying international relations and American foreign policy. Did is that something you engaged in very much? Uh, or I, I didn't do five? much.
2: I didn't do much for foreign policy, and Bill was Bill Fox was. Very much just interested in military policy. He was one of the mm-hmm. early people to become interested in that vital, fundamental subject. But I did not do much with either foreign policy or military policy because mm-hmm. I was interested in this doing this theory uh, dissertation.
1: <clears throat> well, um, I mean, F- Fox, I think, had you know a fair bit to do with the the formation of uh, or you know the development of the field we now know. You know, the, uh, the international relations field as it. As it is, um, I have the impression from reading uh, works from people writing on IR theory, really from the 50s uh, through, or, or you know, up to and including your 1979 theory of international politics, that there was a, a particular concern uh, with trying to uh, stake out a field of international relations that would be, you know, a separate, you know, a distinct field within political science, and that you know, kind of deserved to be treated, you know, with respect and as its own uh, intellectual enterprise. Um, uh, Was that something in the air then, or something that... uh, It was
2: definitely in the air, it was in the air, it was was also on the ground. Ken Thompson, uh, of the Rockefeller Foundation, was very much interested in the development of the field of international politics, and there really was not any such field In existence, in 1930, there were 24 professors of international politics in the country, uh, 18 of whom were teaching international law and organization. Mm -hmm. And that gives you a pretty good idea of what the field was like. I took international politics. There was almost, uh, before Bill Fox came, there was really nobody teaching international politics at uh, Columbia and Har- Harold Sprout used to come from Princeton once a week to teach the, the course. And the course was really what was called, and this was a very frequently used title, Basic Factors in International Relations. And basic factors were who had how many people, who was producing how much coal, who was producing how much steel. Uh, those were the basic factors. And you spent your time. Simply dealing with descriptive empirical matters, and there there was no conception of the field of international politics as such
1: and and uh, you know you know clearly by by the time you're writing theory of international politics, one of your your goals is to to argue for a field of international politics as such yeah, that's a result uh, yeah. Yeah. D- did that develop gradually, or was it something that was kind of already something that you Well, were kind it, of it, it, about it
2: developed well. suddenly because I had this, in effect, three weeks' notice that if you're going to take your comprehensive exams, you're going to do <laughs> international relations, uh-huh. and not those pieces of it uh-huh. which Professor Peffer and I had marked out. So I suddenly had to confront the question what is international relations, if anything? I mean, how can you make sense of it? And by way of making sense of it was, as I just said, what became Man of State and War. And that was the conception. And in fact, after the um, oral exam, the oral exam was traumatic because the rumor was that two-thirds of the people flunked it. That was probably an exaggeration. It was probably only Mm three-fifths. But uh, one person after another would wake up on the day of the oral exam and cancel and creep away and <laughs> never heard of again so it was pre- preparing for the oral exams in Ir and confronting the question of what is international relations that really caused me to to develop the ideas that became an of state war in fact my wife and I borrowed the family her family's car and took a little trip and we pretty really, spent much of the trip discussing what became the dissertation. and mm-hmm. That's where it all, that's where it all began.
1: Now, one of the ideas that's, that's in, uh, well, it certainly makes an appearance in, in, uh, Man, State, and War, and then is more, much more explicit, uh, in later in Theory of International Politics, is the analogy between, uh, you develop this analogy between, um, international politics, between great powers, and an oligopolistic market. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned that you'd been interested, or you'd started, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, but I, I believe you started at Columbia. Uh, I started economics. in economics, right. Uh, had you taken courses in industrial organization, maybe, that had, I mean, w- 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 where did this, this uh It came out of the idea... economic
2: theory, really. Yeah. Uh, no, I never took uh, any courses in industrial organization. Mm-hmm. I don't think there were any... Yeah. There was no such course at Oberlin, okay. and I and I, I didn't stay with economics very long as a graduate mm-hmm. student mm-hmm. at Columbia. Mm-hmm. I made the break and I spent a semester deciding whether to do English literature or, or political philosophy. Political philosophy won.
1: Well, fortunately for us, <laughs> um, so probably fortunately for English literature <laughs> as well. I don't know. Um, well, let me go a, l- a slightly different direction here. Um, it's well, or it's, it's related to this. So, so man, state in the war, and theory of international politics. One of the, and you know, almost everything you've you've written, there's uh, a very strong focus on kind of first principles or or basic theory, fundamental theory. But another thing that I'm curious about is that you know, knowing you, I was I was your, uh, advisee, you, know, you were my dissertation advisor at Berkeley. Knowing you then, and over the years, it's it's I, I know that you have quite. Uh, uh, firm opinions or, or definite opinions about uh, various aspects of American foreign policy. Um, and, you know, correct me or, or modify this if so i got it wrong, but, you know, in general, uh, my impression is that, you know, you feel the U.S. is, let's say, more interventionist than, it's, than it is for our own good in general, uh, that we probably spend a lot more on defense than we, we ought to, uh, and that uh, at least during the Cold War we, we pursued a lot of just crazy policies with respect to nuclear weapons. I believe all those things very strongly. Okay. Um, So I'm curious about how you think about the relationship between kind of thinking about, uh, you know, I guess American foreign policy and um, uh, critiques of of aspects of policy and, you know, scholarly work on international relations theory. I mean, it's not, I mean, I think except maybe for your presidential address, which was about nuclear weapons and, 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 and took some positions, I think, on policy matters, I, I don't, you, you, you haven't written very much on kind of, you know, op-eds or or policy type things. I'm curious about how you think about the relationship between these kind of endeavors or parts of our enterprise. Yeah,
2: I, I have written some things, but it's a small body of, of, of my overall work. I, I wrote a piece, for example, called The Politics of Peace, which was a piece against uh, the war in Vietnam, which I began to oppose and, before it started, uh, in 1963 in the stability of a bipolar world, I have a few things to say mm-hmm. uh, about the folly of engaging in such peripheral enterprises, and I, I, I've believed that for a long time, and I've written a bit about it here and there, but most notably in that piece called The Politics of Peace, which is in my collected essays.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it's important to uh, kind of you know focus on on I don't know basic research on theory and draw implications of that for policy practice, or uh, um, or do you see them as just kind of or the, uh, just very separate enterprises? And some people ought to be spending more of their time, or, or or it's it's good to have some people who are dedicated to policy and other people dedicated to to theory, let's say,
2: uh. yeah. Whether or not it's good, that's what happens. Yeah. But uh, and obviously, theory was what attracted me and what I did most of. But I did stray into practical questions mm-hmm. uh, now and then. in in my collected essays, there's one section that I think there are about four pieces, and there are about arms and disarmament and. Uh, cautions against getting involved in peripheral adventures and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. But uh, that is admittedly a minor part of what I've written. Mm-hmm.
1: Were you ever tempted to work in the policy world?
2: Um, um, no, not really. I mean, it's uh, I, I, like, I like scholarly work. I, mm-hmm. I like to deal in... Uh, ideas and the application of ideas. I feel very much
1: at, at home in that part right. of the world. All right. Well, let me let me ask you a little more about nuclear weapons and, and nuclear weapons policy. Um, so so you were you were uh, wrapping up theory of international politics, your uh, your third book, I guess, um, in in the late 70s. And I believe around the time you started to you know you think about a, a, I guess a next project or you got interested in. Uh, nuclear weapons and their effect on international politics in a uh, in a more detailed way, um, and 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 I guess started reading more heavily in the uh, deterrence theory literature, and this led to an Adelphi paper uh, called uh, "The Spread of Nuclear Weapons: More May Be Better." Right,
2: that grew out of a conference at CIA DOD. Oh. Conference that I was asked to write a paper for, and I remember when the person phoned me and asked me to do it I said, Give me a few days and i'll I'll think about it and decide whether or not I wanted to do it and I had just just finished the final revisions of theory of international politics so i was so I was free to undertake the next big thing and and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that uh, whatever I had said or written about nuclear weapons was very cursory and not based on any careful, deep reading or thinking. So I took that up as being the next subject of interest to me. And, and the result was the paper that I wrote for that CIA-DOD conference, which then became the
1: Delphi paper. So, and, and had you been thinking and writing theory of international politics that, uh, I mean, what, what led you to want to work on nuclear weapons next? The, the sense that, kind of some sort of nagging sense that there was more here than you it, had to was explore that, and, There was
2: more here than I had, mm-hmm. uh, I had not paid enough attention to something that was really fundamentally important in the world of international politics. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I took the opportunity to do that, and of course... I got it deeper and deeper, and more and more
1: fascinated by it. And and would it be fair to say it had a, a big influence on on uh, uh, on how you thought how, how you how uh, you thought about IR since then? Uh,
2: yes, it, 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 that's that, that's correct.
1: You know, the sense I get from from reading your your work is that it it, um, it may have uh, uh, thinking about nuclear weapons may have led to strengthening a view that's already. Uh, partially there, or there in a way, in theory of international politics, which is that at least in you know the great powers, or at least in bipolarity, have um, really l- very little good reason to get into any kind of intense security or military competition, right. uh, and that that you know it's kind of all the more so in a nuclear world. That's right. Yeah, very much more so in a nuclear world. Mm-hmm. Um, does it does it follow then even further that? Uh, um, nuclear weapons imply that kind of what realists uh, were traditionally concerned about, and, uh, and the focus of a great deal of great power politics. You know, who is going to be allied with who in case of war, and and uh, military alliances, and uh, become less relevant,
2: become irrelevant. Yeah, at the strategic level, as de Gaulle always said, uh, nuclear weapons don't add up. I mean, if one nuclear country allies with another nuclear country. They they don't gain anything in terms of nuclear capability. Mm-hmm. Once you have a second strike capability, adding to it doesn't matter.
1: Right. So makes makes alliances at this strategic level irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what does what does that imply about uh, polarity and kind of the role of power that that has traditionally been um, uh, you know a central concern of in the realist school. Well,
2: nuclear nuclear weapons have abolished war among their possessors, or those who enjoy their protection. I mean, never once. I mean, this is the kind of statement you can almost never make in the social science, You know, never once has there been a a, a war uh, between countries, both of whom possess nuclear weapons.
1: Um, I I I uh, I'm very much on board with you here, but just uh, just for the, the heck of it, what, what do you think about Cargill? The Kargil War, there was a, a, a spat. Well, uh, the, between, yeah, uh, as I've Pakistan. always said, and
2: I think quite a few people agree, you, you can fight minor wars in peripheral areas, mm-hmm. uh, even if you have nuclear weapons. I mean, the, the, the test does not lie at the periphery, it lies at the center, as both Pakistani and Indian commentators have said mm-hmm. subsequently.
1: Yeah. Well, so, so let me come back to this polarity question because I mean the you know there there has been a lot of a fair bit of interest on on you know there continues to be interest in you know the distribution of power and how to think about it and how to connect it to to various things we see going on in international politics and you know with Soviet Union you know in, in, in theory of international politics you had uh, uh, characterized there's there's bipolarity you know two great powers two superpowers and multipolarity. And you'd made arguments about you know, the relative stability of bipolarity, which you know, I guess for the first time was in the article you mentioned from uh, 1964. Devil's, right. Which was quite controversial at the time. It was. Um, uh, and then mm. uh, then uh, 1991 or so, the, the Soviet Union disintegrates. Uh, and since then, we've been in kind of a confusing state of affairs concerning polarity. And, and you know, some people talk about it as unipolarity. Right. Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious about how you, you know, what do you think about it? Is that a good, is that a useful characterization? Um, I think so.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's only one uh, power in the world that could be called a great power. Mm-hmm. There's one great power, in the United States, and there are some major powers, and there's the potential second great power being China. But uh, that's the situation we're in. It's a unipolar world, pending what uh, happens and the future development of the. China.
1: Do you see it as a stable condition?
2: It turns out to to be stable in the sense that stability in two senses. One is the stability of of the system defined in terms of polarity, Mm -hmm. and um, unipolarity would seem to be the least stable because unipolarity in itself gives another state a a strong incentive Mm -hmm. to raise itself to the level that would return the world to a bipolar condition. And that does not have to be a level in which the this, this challenging state equals the uh, polar state, but develops enough strength so that it's a it's a challenge. And just as the Soviet Union, you know, by various measures, maybe half the capability of the United States, but that was enough to make the world bipolar. Mm-hmm. And we may be approaching that situation again with the development of the capabilities of China. So uh, it's unipolar for the, for the time being, but it's unstable in the sense that we can expect a second great power to emerge in the relatively near future. Um, so, so the structure of the system is, is unstable.
1: And, and you know, but in a nuclear world... Um what do you see as the, the consequences of, of, you know, unipolarity versus bipolarity or, or other polarities?
2: It is the consequences in terms of war and peace anymore because eh, countries with nuclear weapons don't fight one another. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it, it is consequential in terms of global interventions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I there's, only one, there's only one power now the United States that can behave, that can act globally you know, a blue water fleet and all that. And and that's that's what the Chinese are are trying to achieve and are moving toward with considerable rapidity, but they're not there yet. So it remains unipolar for the time being.
1: So potentially a a plus of more, uh, or moving away from unipolarity, in your view, might be that we'd be less able to pursue... Uh, we we couldn't pointless we, intervention. We'd in we not be able
2: to follow our whims in various
1: yeah. parts of the world
2: without considering what the reaction of China might be. Mm-hmm. Now we of course have to consider the reaction of China regionally, but in, in the future maybe that we have to consider it globally.
1: Mm-hmm. So unipolarity, um, you, you you're, suggested, uh, kind of allows the U.S. to do a lot of boneheaded things. Yeah, right. A it's way.
2: it's a, it's an age-old story. I mean, the, the dominant power always abuses it. It's hard to think historically. And I was as uh, Alexander Hamilton said, history records no inc- incidents in which a dominant power is disposed of its cap- capabilities responsibly. I mean, it's it's dominance is is itself a temptation to to follow one's whims and what one thinks may be good for its own country and at the same time good for others is not going to be looked upon by other countries as, as serving their interests, but rather as serving the self-defined interests of the dominant power. So we run into that situation at all times. We, we, we think we're behaving nobly and uh, disinterestedly, but it doesn't look that way to other countries, which is quite understandable. I mean, it's age old.
1: Well, and so, so, and what do you see as the the main source of these um, you know these mistakes? I mean, the way you just described it, it you know, it sounds like it might be a, a kind of a human nature, uh, human nature, political,
2: political nature situation that is we we're very much aware. It's sort of built into us. It's part of what everybody believes that unbalanced power in the absence of checks and balances. Very bad domestically. Well, it's also bad internationally. But we don't apply the same logic internationally that we do domestically. So I mean, checks and balances we we believe in devout, devoutly in domestic politics, but we don't we don't see that in the absence of checks and balances, that the country that disposes of an undue amount of power is almost sure to abuse it.
1: What what role do you see a kind of um uh, domestic institutions, or, uh, uh, you know, I, I recall conversations or hearing you talk about American defense policy. Say, when you, your various critiques you've made of U.S. nuclear policy, it's uh, my recollection is that, that you've, you often in that are stressing, say, organizational interests uh, of, you know, the defense establishment, sure. parts of the military, or. The, sure. Uh, like, any, you know,
2: like any bureaucratic organization. The military want more. I mean, you sum up up the ambitions of the American military simply being they want more, which is not, I mean, this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the organization or something evil about it. It's just the way big bureaucracies behave. And the difference is, of course, that the military in the United States is um, favored. Uh, It's very difficult for governments to... uh, to control the military, to uh, to uh, to limit uh, military spending. You now we we all know that the United States spends more than the military expenditures of the other countries of the world combined. Why do we do that? I mean, and I, I can, it's it's almost impossible to think of a great power that has ever been so favored as the United States has been. There is no threat and being or on the horizon to the military dominance of the United States. So why do, why do we, why do we uh, spend all that money on defense? You know, wh- why do we let the Secretary of Defense now brag about holding the defense budget uh, down or increasing it only by 4% mm-hmm. in a given year? Why not, uh, why not cut it 10% a year for the
1: next five years? And what do you think the answer is? Like like for why why we are, why we do this. Well, the, the, it is it just kind of human nature, temptation for power, or more? That that part uh, that's
2: part of it. Yeah. It's part of it. Of course, is also the American political culture, mm-hmm. where military spending and military power and so on is very powerful. It's very appealing. Mm-hmm. It, it stands very high in public opinion. If you if you want you really want it just to cut. The defense budget, as much as, as I think it should be cut, it would be extremely unpopular politically in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, hard to do.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, let me to ask you a little bit about about threats to security. I mean, you know, and uh, you know, implicitly you're suggesting like we're we're spending like far far more than is absolutely you know, given our very favored situation. Uh, um, now, one of the things that people have worried a great deal about, as you know, especially since. 9/11 is the you know risk of uh, terrorism with weapons of mass destruction and most of all nuclear weapons. You know, arguably, this concern was one of the reasons for our our uh, misadventure in Iraq. Um, now, in in your your writing on on nuclear weapons, you've argued that this is you know another area where we're exaggerating, or there's a t- great tendency to exaggerate the the real danger. Uh, the main reason being that you've, you've suggested that, you know, any state that goes to the, you know, great trouble needed to acquire nuclear weapons is going to be quite unlikely to just hand it off to some unreliable third-party, act you know, terrorist group that's, you know, could get the state into a lot of trouble. Um, uh, I, I'm curious of what you think about the risk of proliferation leading to states Developing nuclear weapons that states that are are less and less able to control well you know that may disintegrate and lose control of weapons, so you know North Korea and Pakistan well you know you know, you know sooner or later there's going to be a regime change in north Korea Korea, and you know there's you know maybe it'll go smoothly but maybe, maybe yeah. not, and uh, you know Pakistan might survive, but it might also disintegrate in both those cases. Uh, you know, I, I think those are both pretty sc- scary scenarios. But I'm curious about what what you think.
2: I, I agree with you. They're both scary scenarios. Now, if if it, if it happens to North Korea and a, another authoritarian government, or at least a competent government, replaces the present one, I, I don't think there's a worry about such a government using nuclear weapons. I mean, any any country or any group within a country that that uses nuclear weapons knows that it risks severe retaliation, it risks losing everything. Now, uh, some people will say, yeah, but suppose the use of of a nuclear weapon is clandestine and nobody knows who did it. Well, for anybody to run such a risk is is worse than foolhardy, it's self-destructive because the one thing that the United States has and is good at using is surveillance capabilities. I mean, our surveillance capabilities are awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any, any country or any group in any country contemplating the use of nuclear weapons is bound to know that. So uh, to, to think that anybody could use nuclear in any group within a country, let alone the country itself, could use nuclear
1: weapons without being found out, is is simply in the
2: realm of fantasy.
1: Um, but what about loss of control of of, of uh, weapons? Um, yeah, that,
2: that 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 certainly is a problem. And uh, the only thing one can say is that uh, there are certain risks one has to live with. One, you know, nuclear weapons exist, and they will not always be in the control of competent governments. And if that happens, we risk there's no way of getting around this. The risk is simply there. Uh, but if if nuclear weapons are used in such circumstances, their use will be limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that's not much consolation, but it's some. Mm-hmm. I mean, it may be a, a considerable damage to one major city in the world, but beyond that, anything is extremely unlikely. Now, what can you do about that? I mean, there are certain things
1: you just have to live with. That's one of them. I guess the you know the uh, the counter or the you know what can you do about it? Would people so, some would say we can um, try to move towards a nuclear-free uh, world or a world where there you know there is such good control of fissile material that uh, uh, you know the, the this risk is is minimized by having so few different uh, places actually. Having nuclear nuclear weapons, so the risk of losing control them would be smaller. Yeah,
2: how do we get from here to there? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean if, if there's an agreement to abolish nuclear weapons, and if you can even assume that all countries are sincere in, in their in their desire to do that, mm-hmm. it's still not going to happen because any any country with any halfway competent government is going to have enough sense to. Secretly keep a few of these things, and I mean, mm. we, we we sometimes lose sight of the fact that nuclear weaponry is very small. And uh, at, at uh, the Los Alamos National Liber- Laboratory, there's a open, unclassified area in which there are exhibits, nuclear exhibits. Um, one of which is. Uh, one-to-one model of a hydrogen device, and it's about 30 inches long and 12 inches in diameter. I say that just by having looked at it. Now, how are you going to how are you going to police countries? How are you going to convince yourself that all present nuclear countries have gotten rid of 100 percent of their weapons? which they'd have to be idiots to do, right? Because everybody knows that somebody else may cheat. So unless you're stupid, you do a little cheating yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So we'd have, at best, a clandestine store, small stores of nuclear weapons sprinkled around the world, just as we now have larger stores of nuclear weapons sprinkled around the world. We wouldn't be any better off, really.
1: So, so this would seem to put a, you know, what would follow them. you know, there's really a high premium on uh, trying to get to a world where you have a lot of, uh, you know, states are capable um, and, you know, can control their own materials and, uh, uh, you know, have the capability to do that. And uh, uh, that, that, you know, if you can't get, if you think it's very unlikely to get rid of them entirely, then, uh, I think it's impossible to yeah. get rid of them entirely. Yeah, then you've got to you've got to uh, address the the dangers posed by a Pakistan or North Korea disintegrating by doing something to try to keep them from you know, disintegrating. Right.
2: Or right as Tom Shelling used to say that, you know, w- once the knowledge exists, the only way you can get rid of nuclear weapons is universal brain surgery. Mm-hmm. And there's no way of getting rid of the knowledge of how to make the weapons. And uh, since the, the knowing how is not very difficult, the doing of it is difficult. But a lot of countries have the capability of doing it. So there's there's nothing short of a uh, uh, sort of unimaginably competent and dis- and despotic international regime uh, that would be capable. If you can imagine, it would be capable of controlling and. Moving toward the elimination of nuclear weapons and and you know who who wants that, who wants that kind of world tyranny,
1: do you think that you know you know given this understanding of the consequences of the nuclear revolution and what it implies that this changes the field of IR in terms of what what uh, questions are worth you know merit more study and areas that we shouldn't be as much focused on
2: yeah, I think it does because um, you know to say that war among the possessors of nuclear weapons and and the number of countries possessing them will be will increase and the number of countries that enjoy the protection of other countries that have nuclear weapons. uh, It means that there's a large peace area in the world where war has become practically unimaginable. You can't imagine two nuclear countries going to war. Uh, that's been the condition, I mean, we've known that's the condition of the Soviet Union and the United States, and that's now a, a much more general, a more general condition. Mm-hmm. And that certainly changes the international political problems. They're, the problems that are now problems of what are you doing, and, and the peacetime relations of those
1: states, they can't fight each other. So in some ways international politics has become, or at least major power, international politics is, is uh, a lot more dull
2: it's so uh, a lot duller. Yeah. It's become, uh, so in a sense, domesticated,
1: yeah. which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, last thing I wanted to ask you about um, was about change and, and, and uh, you know your perception of change over your over your career. Um, one of the themes of realist writers in, on international relations has 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 always been that there are certain basic fundamental aspects of the quality of international politics that don't change. You know the condition of anarchy, lack of a supranational government, and the importance of the relative power of the states or the political communities. The idea is that this this is you know more or less a constant across time, and have implications that are more or less similar across eras. But you know certainly there a lot of things change uh, in time. Um, I'm curious about. You know when you think back over you know sixty years of thinking about or I don't know roughly sixty years thinking about international politics um, are there changes or developments uh, that you find particularly striking so let's say other than changes resulting from a change in the distribution of power um, or the implications of nuclear weapons are there are there other things that you know that when you think when you think back to uh, the world of the fifties or or before or or I don't know the sixties and think about you know, when when read the paper and think about what's going on now, that strike you as being different in an interesting way? Yeah,
2: I think that uh, I think that students now, or then students and teachers now, uh, move away from the fundamentally important international political developments to deal with a lot of you know, um, data sets and. Um, that sort of thing. Um, And uh, the the real questions of power and the relations of states are emphasized less than they used to be. And uh, these other kinds of questions uh, that are answerable sometimes by Mathematical and other formal methods uh, take over the political sense and the search for uh, precision. Mm
1: -hmm. So that's a change in, or that's something you see in terms of the field. Uh, um, Ask ask some more about that. So, so you think we're not spending enough time on? I don't know, important issues, or what you see as important issues in international politics that concern the distribution of power, or, or, or is it, is it the distribution of power or is it certain topic areas, uh, that are getting under Yeah, yeah, Uh yeah. Um, well, you know, well, if, if nuclear weapons have kind of, um, uh, you know, made great power war much less likely, um, does that not force us to to study uh, stuff that's, <laughs> you know, I don't know... of, of their... Interdependence, for example. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'd say
2: that's a good subject. That's um, a
1: subject close to
2: my heart. Yeah. And I, I I think that...
1: Oh, that's something that you think has, has increased in an interesting way, or... No, really I,
2: I, no, I don't think it's increased. I think it's decreased, but... Uh, even, uh, even, even since the end of the Cold War? Yeah, the, but the perception is, of course, that interdependence has increased. But... Uh, uh, interdependence implies a certain degree of equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's what we don't have in, inter- in international politics. is all about equality. Uh, much more so than it is in the study of domestic politics. Partly because in international politics, the inequalities across the acting units are much greater than they are domestically in most countries. And I mean, you can look that up, and it's simply true. And international inequalities are immense. Domestic inequalities are somewhat tempered in most states by law and welfare programs and all those things that we that we know about. That's not true in international politics.
1: So, is the the idea that you know there's a lot of focus on the increased share of you know, imports and exports and countries' GDP, but they're, they're, they're not paying attention, to, or this fails to pay attention to the, the, the you know, staggering differences in aggregate right. uh, GDP between, you know, the U.S. and smaller countries, right. say.
2: And, of course, it's part of the American ideology, it's part of the ideology of any dominant state to play its dominance down. I mean, you know, we're, we're just one of the folks. We're just like these other states. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, they have their problems, we have our problems. So we're all in the same boat. Uh, which is, of course, the, intelligent for the dominant power to talk that way. But it's completely wrong. It's completely misleading to, to do that. I mean, we're not like other states.
1: So you'd say that interdependence is low in the sense that the you know the it's U.S. A, is just incredibly much more powerful you than you other states. Yeah,
2: you can't take a situation in which, in which some states are highly independent and other states are very dependent and then call that interdependence. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we do, but, I mean, it's, 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 it makes sense politically. It doesn't make sense intellectually. And I remember when I uh, was introducing this topic at uh, Berkeley, one French student came up to me, uh, even though we hadn't started talking about it, and said, you know, why do American officials and American academics always talk about interdependence? We Frenchmen know... You don't depend on us. We depend on you.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, that's the way it looks to any thoughtful member of any foreign country. There's a dominant country and then there are all the rest. We like to call that interdependence, naturally. But it doesn't look like interdependence if you're one of the dependent countries. In fact, one as one British political scientist put it, interdependence... Is a euphemism popular in America to disguise the extent of American dominance
1: that's true so and would you would you carry this over into you know one of the the you know an area of of research interest in the field has been on uh norms and say uh norms regarding intervention and you know the idea of the responsibility to protect and the idea of like well, it used to be that that there was greater regard for sovereignty norms and now if you know there's a revolution going on in Libya uh lots of people on from the left to the right say oh well yeah sure we should go enforce a no fly zone and help out with the revolution That's right. and, and that that this reflects uh, this kind of thinking reflects a uh you know a change of norms from what what would have been thought of as you know something anyone could anyone would it would occur to anyone in in the you know, even even 30 or 40 years ago. I think
2: the norms probably have not changed very much, Mm -hmm. and nor has the behavior. uh, And we may be more aware of the norms that especially the United States does not obey. I mean, it's hard to think of any other country that's as interventionist as the United States, which is simply because we're the strongest country. Mm -hmm. We intervene more. Mm -hmm. We don't even notice that we intervene. Mm -hmm. I mean, that... How many people remember that we invaded the uh, Dominican Republic in 1965? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist mm-hmm. in the American memory. Huh? Mm-hmm. I'm sure the Dominican Republic, I'm sure they remember it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we put 23,000 troops into the M- Dominican Republic, which is, of course, a larger military body than the Dominican Republic itself can muster. So, you know, naturally it fits right in with dem- democracies don't fight wars. Because if, if you're a really powerful democracy, you don't need to fight wars. Mm-hmm. You just occupy the country. Mm-hmm. They're not going to fight back.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the the upside is you you you, um, you don't see really uh, things that you would that would strike you as as big changes. Uh, and in fact, uh, it, there you, more be your sense that we're. Uh, that that we're kind of fooling ourselves about a lot of these and that, that, yeah, the that, international
2: politics in the realm of jury repetition and mm-hmm. that 's because the basic structure of the system does not change it remains mm-hmm. anarchic so as long as as long as this system is an anarchic one you expect the repetition of the same types of behavior now modified by technology and other other changes but it basically the same kind of behavior in this in, 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 Spawned by the same kind of
1: situation that countries are in. But this is a little bit of a, a tracking back. But what's the difference between unipolarity and hegemony?
2: I don't see any difference between unipolarity and hegemony.
1: But wouldn't hegemony then? Oh, be okay. The yeah, yeah I do. You could be,
2: okay. Hegemony could be a, a regional.
1: Oh, but uh, but I, I thought that I thought that uh, you know, you know you're, you're saying as long as the system stays the same in the sense of anarchy. Um, But if there's one dominant power, why isn't that the end of anarchy?
2: Well, because the system remains anarchy, which places a premium on the differences in capabilities across the acting units. And that's much more so in international politics than it is in domestic politics. I mean, it doesn't mean that power isn't important in, in domestic politics, but it's at least modified by laws and the enforcement of laws and courts and so on uh, that uh, all those things that do, do not exist at least effectively in international politics so it's it, it reduces largely not entirely but largely to a question of relative capabilities
1: which are extraordinarily skewed yeah you know, mm-hmm. uh, so let me, let me just end then i mean you you, you have you brought up this question of change in the field um, that you've seen over time, and I guess the uh, your feeling is that you know we're missing uh, we're 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 missing uh, some of the big things that are yeah. going on, um, uh, and you know uh, possibly uh, that might possibly that might be related to the focus on quantitative methods and data sets and and uh, formal methods. Um, um, and, and I guess, and you suggested some of the things that are, you know, think are big that we're missing, which is the low level of interdependence, uh, uh, the importance of a distribution of power that we kind of ignore uh, for a lot of things. I guess apart from great power war, right? Um,
2: um, and the emphasis on norms, and you know, we all know that norms exist to be broken, and the people who are going to break them are the more powerful people
1: um in terms of like how uh i mean you know one of the the kind of constants in your career has been a a real interest in and, and attention to uh classical political philosophy the tradition of it is uh, tradition of political philosophy is that something you think that um uh i don't know would we be would be would would we be better off uh uh spending more time on that in terms of helping us to how to think about these larger questions? I, I, I
2: believe that very strongly. I mean, we have, mm-hmm. you know, one of the advantages that we have in political science is we have a great historical body of literature mm-hmm. in the Western world from largely from Plato onward. But, you know, all kinds of uh, different uh, emphases and uh, all kinds of different schools are represented. And you think of uh, Plato and you know, Saint Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and Machiavelli and I mean anything that anything that could be of importance politically is is represented and written about and discussed and debated at the highest intellectual levels. It's a wonderful literature, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a shame if there are people in the field who uh, not had the benefit of thorough exposure to that literature, Mm -hmm. not to the exclusion of other things by any means, but, you know, there's enough time to to read the really great literature in our field and to do other things as well. I mean, it doesn't interfere with doing other things.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. This has been uh, very instructive, and I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thanks very much on on behalf of ARPS.
2: Thank you, and I appreciate your effort very much.
0: You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquat paz Thanks for listening.